Good morning. How are you guys? Good to be back with y'all. Um, I know that some of y'all uh, are maybe starting uh, the second session of college summer session, whatever, this week. So some of you guys maybe haven't been with us so far this summer. And welcome. We're happy to have you. Um, and we're going through the Psalms. Um, we have been going through some different Psalms each week um, and teaching through those. And I'm excited to get to do that again with you all this morning. I really wanted to get up here and start with a Dallas Mavericks joke. But I held it in because I feel like God told me I didn't want to start this whole thing with having people angry at me already. I know it's a touchy subject with DeAndre Jordan. But if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 145 this morning. But I want to start, before we get into that, I'd like to start and share with you guys one of my not-so-proudest moments. If anything, it was, yeah, not, not, not my best moment. And last summer, one of my best friends got married. And uh, if you guys are new to college, welcome if you're freshmen. If you're not, welcome to A&M. Everybody gets married by the age of 21. If you haven't realized this, it's really weird. And uh, last summer, you know, I was in my summer rotation. I just graduated college, and like eight of my friends got married. So I was like, it's like the sixth wedding. I was like, this is nuts. But the way it works, you know, I was a groomsman for one of my best friends, and we all have the same tuxedos on, all similar tuxedos, and then his is a little bit different. And so the ceremony went on. We're wearing these sweet gray tuxedos. We're on the dance floor at the after party. You know, the ceremony's over, and we're just jamming. My song comes on. These guys are laughing because they already know what's coming. And uh, my jam comes on, and it'd be like, you know, the whip today, whatever it is that we're jamming to. But I, I look out, and it's a country song. And I'll be up front with you again. I am not good at country dancing. And I, uh, unfortunately, I am dating a girl who loves the country dance. So I've been working on it, been working on it. The song comes on. I'm like, bam, about to prove this. I've been, I've been putting some hard work here. And so I'm like... Where is she? She's not here. Song's coming on, so I'm like jamming. I'm looking through the whole place, kind of like this tight space. And I'm looking for her to grab her out on the dance floor. I can't find her. And ladies, I don't know why guys do this, but we do this little thing where we like to slap each other on the butt. It's like a good game kind of deal. And uh, I am I'm scanning through this place. And, you know, out of the corner of the peripheral of my eye, as I'm locked in on my mission here looking, I see one of my buddies wearing his tuxedo. And, you know, I just give him a nice little slap, and I just keep going. But I made the mistake that I quickly realized it was not a groomsman. Not only was it not a groomsman, it was not a man at all. It was a woman. <laughs> and I knew that quickly because as, I, as soon as I took one step past what I thought was my groomsman, all I heard was this lady go, oh. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh. And so I was probably one step back. I looked once and there's this 45-year-old Hispanic lady who's wearing a tuxedo because she works for the wedding place and she's like serving dinner. And I was like, oh no. I was like, I just like sexually harassed that lady. And so, you know, what are you supposed to do? You just keep going. (laughs) So I just keep going. I just kept going. I kept looking for my girlfriend Claire. And uh, yeah, it's not one of my brightest moments, but I mistaked by that appearance, by her appearance, I mistaked her for being one of my, my groomsmen. She wasn't. She just worked there. And I really just wanted to tell you all one of my most embarrassing stories that uh, obviously I'm somewhat proud of because it's funny, but should not be at all. And, uh, but 
the, the mistaking uh, of someone for, for who they are in that, in that situation was this funny, embarrassing moment for her. Probably not so funny. Just probably really weird. But, uh, you know, I, I, again, I, I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking also about college and first impressions. And there's a lot of them that we have. And, I mean, before college, we always have first impressions. And it's really funny. My friends and I, we love to get together and, and, and talk like, man, what was your first impression of me, you know? And one of my friends, uh, I'm, I'm sure you all have, have a friend like this that you're now friends with, but the first time I met this one guy, we were, running for, we were going out for the same organization, and it was like an informational, and afterwards we went and sat down with somebody who was in the, in the group, and then there was like three of us who were trying to become actives in the group. So we're all sitting in the circle, and it's basically just time to get to know each other, but ask questions about the organization, blah, blah, blah. So there's bubbly, joyful kids all coming in there, and he sits down, and you know, I'm I'm not like an awkward guy, but at the same time, I was just kind of feeling things out. And he's just like Mr. Smile and asking all these, these good questions. And I'm just like, who's this suck up right here? I was like, man, this kid, I, he's, he's just totally sucking up. And as I, it caused us for, for quite a while that we ended up both getting in the organization. And it took me a while to realize that that's actually who he was. Like he was just one of those people who's just joyful and happy. And, and, and we run across those people and I think we're skeptical about it sometimes. But the deal that's funny about first impressions is because we have this idea of somebody that if we actually step into a friendship with them, we realize it wasn't true. It wasn't who they actually were. And, and this morning, as we're in the Psalms, we're, if you guys have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 145. We, uh, we're in a Psalm where David is going to describe who the Lord is. And here's why I want to do this this morning, because uh, I've gotten the privilege to teach the last two weeks. Hopefully you weren't here last week because we weren't here. So hopefully if you, you did, enjoy your worship by yourself. But the two weeks before that, we, we've talked about a, a prayer life and the struggle of a prayer life. Um, the toughness that we can experience as we try to, to walk and prayerfully have a, a walk with the Lord and have that intimacy there. And last week, two weeks ago, the last time we were here, we talked about delighting in the most valuable. That David said that, man, God's word and who he is, is most worthy of being delighted in. And how do we do that? And, and really this week, as I, as I thought about looking through Psalms and what I want to talk about, I just said, you know, I, I don't want us this morning to feel like, hey, pray more, read your Bible more. Like, that's not what I want to do this morning. That as David is, is writing about who God is, he's just describing his character. And A.W. Tozer is a theologian, and he says this about what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When we hear God and we think about God, Whatever it is that comes in our mind that we attribute to him, it is the most important thing about us. And I just, this morning, want us to know and, and, and reflect on who the Lord is. Because ultimately, you know, the person that you want to be, maybe some of the areas you want to grow in, where that really comes from is that when you reflect and know who the Lord is at a deeper level, that changes you. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at a couple things that he, he ascribes to the Lord and his character in Psalm 145. So if you guys are reading with me, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 9. And we're really going to stick on verses 8 through 9 and kind of go through that, okay? So Psalm 145, verse 1. I will extol you, my King and my God. I bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. 
On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And listen here, guys. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Uh, I just want to pray real quick and then we'll get into this, all right? So you guys just bow with me. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word that speaks, that is alive, that is true. I pray that you would speak through it this morning to us. Um, I pray that we would know you more. God, that we would know your character and know who you are more and that that would change us by your Holy Spirit, Lord. So I just pray that you would be present with us, that you would move, that you would speak, um, God, and that you would just draw us more into your love and, and that we'd be more about you. Um, and so we thank you for this time. Thank you for the space. Thank you for the body. And uh, we just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first thing David says here in verse 8, if you guys are looking, he says, the Lord is gracious and merciful. And really, you know, I know we're in college I know we get these terms now, but really I think we can get them confused every once in a while. And I think it's good to clarify things here. And that as he's ascribing grace, graciousness and mercy to God, he, he's saying these two things. Where, where mercy is this idea of we're not getting what we deserve. That, that we as people who have fallen short of the glory of God, who have sinned before him, a holy and righteous God, what that deserves is death and judgment. And God shows mercy to not give us that judgment by sin in Jesus. And so it's this idea of, of mercy is not getting what you actually deserve, okay? This is where it gets a little confusing. Follow with me. It's really not. But grace is where we get what we don't deserve. I almost confused myself. But grace is where we get what we don't deserve. And so the mercy being that we're, we're getting, we're not getting what we deserve. Grace, we're, 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 not, we're getting what we do not deserve. See, I'm doing it. And I realized I was thinking about it, these, these, this came to mind, I, I thought about mercy and I was like, oh, this explains it perfectly. I was like, man, the last time my dad tried to spank me, I was about 12, don't worry, I wasn't in college, you guys are really looking at me weird, and uh, the last time my dad tried to spank me, I just laughed at him. And I think me and my dad had this mutual agreement that he was like, dang, I guess I can't spank him anymore. Like, once your kid laughs at you about spanking, and then the parent acknowledges that and doesn't get more angry, you're doing good. That means it's done. And uh, I just thought about that. I was like, oh, that's the idea of I didn't get the spanking that I deserved. Some of y'all may not agree with spanking, so let's not get into that. But uh, that, that, that kind of solidified that for me. And this idea of grace, this is, this is something I love about college. doesn't fly anywhere else. But some reason in college, you can kind of build a relationship with your professor. And, you know, over time, at the end of a midterm, at the end of a final, you can go talk to your professor about your grade and there's a chance they'll change it. It's a, it's a crazy thing. And uh, my, I think my junior year, my sophomore year, I was in a Spanish class and I am awful at Spanish. Almost the reason I didn't graduate. And I, I kind of bust my butt in this class and I get a B. And, you know, again, I, by the end of it, can't remember half of what I learned. So, you know, me being just believing this whole thing about college, maybe you can get a grade change and that kind of stuff. I was on vacation already for winter break, and I was like, I'm just going to email my teacher. I mean, what's the worst that can happen here? So I put a little email together, and I was like, hey, 
loved your class. You know, I did the suck up thing first. I was like, you're awesome. Love you. <laughs> I've learned so much. And I was like, is there any way you could just give me an A? Pretty much what I said. And I was like, I know this is dumb, but I have nothing to lose. I mean, I'm not in this guy's class anymore. I get an email back two hours later where he said, oh, yeah, I'll give you an A. And I was like, what? This guy is the best. <laughs> I was like, I love college. And uh, I, I, it's funny, as I thought about that, it never happened again. So if you try it, I hope it works, but it might not. It, it was literally the only time, and it was the least I tried, and somehow it worked. But, you know, this idea of getting something I didn't deserve, I probably deserved to see, and I got an A. And you see, this, this concept of grace, when we're talking about God being gracious, he's gracious to all. You know, there, there's a thing called common grace where basically all it is is that those who don't even know Jesus, who don't step into a relationship with him and, and step into saving grace, everybody gets common grace. Everybody gets something that they don't deserve. The fact that everybody is living and breathing and gets to exist another day is another day they did not deserve to live because they have offended a holy and righteous God. And not only that, but God gives good gifts to even those people. I mean, just like we get to walk outside of this room and experience a beautiful summer afternoon, so do those people. You know, they get to experience relationships and maybe love and maybe a good marriage and and, and some of these other things. They get to experience good things by the grace of God. And we would sit here and say, man, that's, that's, that's not what everything is about. It's, it's an illusion if you think that's what, what it is, what it, everything is about. But he goes a step further. And, and when I'm talking about God's graciousness this morning, it's his saving grace. That as we step into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and what he did on a cross, that we receive things we don't deserve. That now we're made right with him forever. But not only that, we get to experience the Holy Spirit. We get to experience good community. We get to experience fellowship with him and with others. We get to experience real abundant life that you can't outside of the grace of Jesus and the grace of God. I mean, God is gracious. He, I mean, nobody is righteous, not one. But in, but in God's great grace and mercy, he offers that to everyone. And uh, yeah, there's something that... I really was, was thinking about this week that I just feel like we, again, we, we kind of step into a relationship when you know that it's, you know, Ephesians 2, it's, it's by grace alone and by faith in Jesus. And like, that's all that it takes. But I think there is, again, a, a thing that we step, as we walk with him, we kind of feel like then it's grace and then we got to do some things, you know? And again, I, I love, it, it may be a beating over you of this, but it's good news that no matter how you are doing right this moment, in your relationship with Jesus, if you have one. Then no matter how you're doing, how much you're reading your Bible, or how much you're praying, or how much you feel like you're missing it, whatever it is, that God's grace and love is constant. It doesn't change. You don't get more of it. You don't get less of it. He doesn't love you less now. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow as he always is. And he's gracious. Man, that's good news. And, you know, David is, is praising God as he writes these things. And uh, the next one he talks about, and if you're following with me, he says, the Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. And I'm not harping on my dad here. You know, he was not so much a person who was slow to anger. Maybe you guys have had a parent like that before. And really, by God's grace, my dad is a really gentle and kind guy now. And he wasn't like this ridiculous, angry guy. But he was, he was not slow to anger. I remember being about nine years old, 
my dad loved golf. He taught me to play golf. And so we were out on this course and we had this group behind us teeing off. And we were in the fairway and they just hit into us. So this ball kind of comes over, you know, little JT, I'm like eight years old. And I'm my dad's only boy, you know, he's had two girls. I'm his prized possession. I like golf just like he does. He can watch sports with me. He can wrestle with me. And this ball comes right on my head and he just like got furious. And so he, uh, he goes over and he picks up the guy's golf ball. And by this point in my life, I had a couple of run-ins with my dad on the golf course where he got into it with someone else. And I was like, I'm like nine years old. I have to tell my dad to stop. F- like, don't fight somebody, please. It's not fun. And uh, this guy ends up coming and he, he wasn't super apologetic, but he ends up coming up to my dad. And after whatever, he was like, hey, can I have my ball back? My dad stopped his ball. And I, this will never leave me. And it's kind of one of those things that it was like awesome, but also it was really probably not the nicest thing. But he was like, can I have my, gall, my ball back? And my dad was like, yeah, you want your ball back? Sure, you can have it back. And he turns around, and there's like this pond 25 yards over, and he's like, here you go. And he just chunks it in the pond. <laughs> and I was like, you know, part of me was like really scared. I was like, are they about to fight? And then part of me was like, that was so cool. <laughs> um, but it's just a funny example, but, you know, my dad was someone who was kind of quick to get angry at, at moments. And what that did for me at times as I was little is that it kind of created an atmosphere sometimes I grew up that I was a little bit hesitant to, to talk to my dad about maybe some things that I had messed up in, you know? I, I, I sometimes went the hiding route instead of talking to my dad about it um, when, when, I really, when I really knew that I screwed up. And as I, as I was thinking about this slow to anger thing with, with the Lord, I, I, I thought about the New Testament. I thought about Jesus because Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact, exact representation of God. That as we read the New Testament and look at how Jesus lived and walked, that that's God in the flesh. We can know his character by knowing Jesus. And as you think about the way Jesus dealt with people, whoever came up to him with, with an issue, with their mess, I mean, how did he deal with them? What comes to mind is the woman caught in adultery, you know, where everyone wants to stone her and, and they bring her to Jesus and say, hey, this woman's been caught in adultery. And Jesus says, well, the first one who hasn't sinned can cast a stone. And everyone kind of drops the rock and they're like, well, she committed a worse sin, but I've sinned. And, and Jesus is, is telling in that moment as it happens, says, well, neither do I condemn you. Like, go and be free. And I think about the woman at the well who's had like five husbands and the grace and the, and the love that, that Jesus shows her in that moment, knowing all of her past, all of her filthy past. And, and on and on and on. Like the way that Jesus responds to somebody coming to him with brokenness, with sin, with messing up, which we will do and he knows it, is always grace. That doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for the things you do, but God will walk you through that. He will hold your hand as you walk through the decisions that you make. But there's grace and there's love. He's slow to anger. And, and you know, I, I don't know how, how your relationship was with your dad or, you know, but sometimes we really attribute that to God. And there's moments where I'm like, you know, God is more of this military. Like when I mess up, then I got to do a couple good things to feel good about our relationship again. Then he'll be pleased with me. That's, it's just not true. And... It's tough, though, to, to feel that way. And as I was thinking about this, this image came in my head uh, of, of God and him being slow to anger. And I thought about the fact that God has created every single one of us in this room. And not only that, he's created everyone that's ever lived. But right now, in the present time, as God looks out on our world, I don't know how many billions of people, as he looks out at the world, 
I mean, what does he see? I think that he sees a lot of sin, a lot of grievances, a lot of things happening where people are wronged and he's wronged. A lot of detestable things. I mean, the God who created this, these people to know him, to enjoy him, to experience life, he looks out and he sees brokenness. I mean, there's a lot worth being angry about. And God does say that there is a, there is a righteous anger. Obviously, I mean, he is righteous. He, there's a righteous anger. Even the New Testament says, be angry and do not sin. It's not that all anger is sin. But as I thought about it, I was like, man, God, like, how is God slow to anger? I want to read this story real quick because it's something that kind of caught me this week. I was in Branson, Missouri for for vacation and this Facebook post um, someone showed me. And I just want to read it to y'all real quick. Uh, And it popped up just as I was thinking about this slow to anger. And it's this. There's this kid named Gavin Stone. And he was, he was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and ADHD when he was a toddler. And if you don't know what Asperger's is, I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't know everything about it, but I know that it's a type of autism that has a little more to do with social, you know, that, that they can still learn at a high ability and stuff, but their social cues are just, it's just they're different. And here's this kid who's a teenager and he says, um, he's had it since he's a toddler and his mom said the family has faced both, faced both challenging and joyful times. The teenager has difficulty maintaining relationships and tends to isolate himself. His mom wrote in a Facebook post shared by a friend. He can, appear, he can appear rude, impatient, weird, detached, or uninterested, but this is not intentional, she wrote. He can also be kind, generous, and forgiving, but even this can appear awkward at times because some of it is learned and not always natural. Gavin's worked hard to learn social cues, but still has challenges. Being a teenager with Asperger's is tough because all of a sudden, these teenagers begin, around you begin to constantly start breaking all the social to-dos and don'ts that you spent years learning. And last week, something horrible happened to Gavin. He was beaten up by kids he didn't know. And she kind of explained the situation on Facebook. She said that on Thursday night of last week, some kids were talking about how it's weird that he is always by himself attending events alone, watching people, and it was creepy. How he wanted to be friends with people he didn't even know. And on Friday night, another kid overheard this conversation and decided to take matters into his own hands and become judge and jury. And this is the result of that. He didn't ask questions, didn't get to know Gavin, never met him, and didn't even give him a chance to leave. He was called to meet someone surrounded by people he didn't know, choked, punched, and left laying on the pavement so he would learn his lesson. And I read that and, you know, I think I've, I've gotten to be a camp counselor where I've had a two kids with Asperger's and I don't know, like God has given me a special place in my heart. I think because even just knowing the punk I was as a kid growing up that I wouldn't have thought twice about, you know, I wouldn't have gone that far, but you know, you just, you don't, as I read that now, I'm like, man, that is so wrong. You know, like there's, there's compassion for that kid, but then there's just anger. Like you just, I mean, if you're, if you're honest with yourself and it may not be that situation for you, maybe something else, but there's things that get you angry where you're just like, man, I want to beat that person up. It's a nice way to put it. But as I thought about it, I was like, man, how is it that this God who looks out and sees things like this all the time, but worse, how is it that he has compassion and grace and love for this Gavin? I mean, that's, he has compassion, grace, and love for this Gavin kid, but how is it that he looks out on those who do those kind of things, and yet it's still grace? How is it that he, he, he slows his righteous anger to still show grace and mercy. And uh, it, it, it's mind-blowing. And I just, 
at first when I read this slow to anger, I was like, oh, there's not much here. But as, as you begin to think about it, as you guys been able, been, begin to read the scripture and take time to think about it, I mean, it's crazy that that's who our God is. Uh, and the reason why is not just because he's gracious and merciful that he's slow to anger. It's this. It's the next thing that, that he says after that, he says, he is abounding in steadfast love. He said, the Lord is abounding in steadfast love. You know, I got to talk to youth this morning about this topic and I changed some things, but it was funny to be in there for a second and ask them, hey, like, you just, it's, I'm 24, I had a birthday this week, I'm feeling a little older, you know, you're in there with like 11, 12 year olds, I'm like, is Toy Story still like the movie? And I was like, I put, I put him on the spot, I was like, raise your hand if you haven't te- seen Toy Story. And I don't know if they were just scared to or not, but no one raised their hand, so I was like, apparently it's still an awesome movie, because it was when I was little. And, uh, I was talking about that with them, and it was funny, as I, as I thought about that movie and thought about uh, the plot of that movie, I got a little deeper with it. And I thought, you know, what is Toy Story really about? Has everyone seen Toy Story? Who hasn't seen to- Toy Story? All right. Seriously? That's awesome. You need to go see it. You're never too old. Never too old. Specifically one, you can go see two. I don't know about three, but... I thought about it and I was like, you know, here's Andy who has this toy Woody and he has his favorite toy and he, he loves Woody and Woody loves Andy and blah, blah, blah. And what happens? Buzz Lightyear comes in the picture and, and Woody gets a little bit jealous, doesn't really like this guy because he's starting to vie for his attention and his affections and uh, Andy's dumb. He thinks he can fly and he's just a toy. And, uh, but so they get separated. They end up becoming friends because they get separated from their owner by Sid, who, I don't know if you guys remember, it stuck with me until I was a little kid. That little creepy baby thing at Sid, it's just weird. And, uh, but they get stuck at his house, and it's like on this mission to find their owner again. And in a funny way, like what that story really is about is about love. You can laugh. But it is. Like Andy, I mean, Woody wants to be loved by Andy, and when something came into the picture to kind of, to jeopardize that, he, he, he begins to get jealous and envious of this guy and a lot of things come up. But it's a story about, you know, bringing back to uh, his, his owner who loves him. And I, know it's really, I know it's really silly and cheesy, but again, as, as I think about college, as I think about my high school years, most of what I did, most of what we're really driven by, whether we realize it or not at the time, is love and acceptance. Like that is what we desire most to be fulfilled. I, I, would, I would argue more than happiness, too, because we believe that when we find, maybe it's that one person, or when we're really loved by someone, that that, that, that is our happiness. We're happy. But whatever it may be, I mean, I think about sports, and as I played sports in high school, a lot of times I just wanted to get, I wanted to fit in, and I wanted to be accepted, and I wanted to be praised and loved for my abilities. You know, the, the success that you guys want to achieve in life, maybe, uh, as, you, as you study throughout college and what you're hoping to do, a lot of what we're looking for is, is this to be fulfilled by love. And here's the deal that really stuck with me. We, we, we'd shake our head and say, yeah, yeah, okay, that's, that's true. But this word steadfast is what really stuck with me because it's not just that God loves us abundantly, but it's that it's steadfast, which means that it's unmovable, it's not changing, it's constant no matter what. He never runs out of supply and it never changes. And I think... I know for me personally, the, the reason that can be hard for us to really grasp a concept like that is because humans' love isn't steadfast. It's very dependent at times. I mean, even something that was created to be the most steadfast love two people are supposed to have is marriage. 
And as we look at that and as we experience in our own life, maybe a, a broken home and a broken family, like things are fickle. And, you know, this, this idea of steadfast love is, is crazy, but it's so good for our souls. And again, I think about the whole Toy Story thing with, with, with Woody and the way he treated Buzz because I feel stupid talking about Buzz Lightyear as I'm talking about God's love for us. But seriously, there's many examples of this, but a, a, a lot of times the jealousy and the envy and the, and the dislike he had towards that person was because he was vying for what he considered to be most valuable. And you see, the thing is, is that we get caught up in all these things around us that we think this person or this thing or this amount of money or whatever it may be, that's what's going to bring me that love and that happiness. And that if anything comes in to, to interfere with that, then that's the, we become envious, we become jealous, we, be, we, we become, I mean, because they're, they're about to step into what we consider most prized. And the beautiful thing about God's love is that it is steadfast and is constant. The one who created you, the one who you are most need that love, he's, it's, he's there, it's offered. And when we get that, this is the cool thing, is that when we get that, there is such freedom. Because we realize now that we don't have to go get it from somewhere else. We don't have to go get it from somebody else. That we have it. That then changes us to where no matter who comes into our sphere, we can love people. We can point them in the right direction. But we, there's a freedom that often we don't get to experience about this steadfast love. That we, we chain ourselves up even once we step into a relationship with Jesus. You know, whether it is the earning it back or whatever. God is saying, I, it is, I am the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. Who I am is constant and I steadfastly love you. Would we be more interested in that than we are these little things, these created things? And yeah, I, I, I wanted to read one verse. Romans 5a says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, I, I, this is why I think it said, you know, love covers a multitude of sins because so much of our, our sin often comes from this place of we're trying to get this love somewhere else. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. That's why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then to love people, to love your neighbor. The next part, after he says in verse 8, abounding in steadfast love, these are the last two things, guys. He said, the Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to all. Now, I am not going to give a Timothy Keller sermon on this thing. There's plenty of resources. Our leaders in our room would love to talk to you about it. But this is a real, when this idea comes up that God is good, most people who are adamantly against the idea of a God or that don't care for him, it's this idea of, and, and we've probably experienced even our some, in our own lives, but there's, there's, there's evil. I mean, there's, there's, there's bad things. We've experienced bad things. Like, how can we, how do we gel these two things together? You know, the goodness of God to all and, and the evil and the things that we experience in this world. And uh, I just wanted to read this. Charles Spurgeon said this, and it's just this idea that, man, when, just remember when God created, when he created the world and when he created Adam and Eve, it was good. That It was perfect. And that God gave them a choice because he didn't create robots. He, he gave them a choice. And when they decided to disobey God and believe that he wasn't good, when they were tempted and believed that he wasn't good, they sinned. And, and once that's entered, man, it's everything is screwed up. 
And, and Spurgeon says this, I really like this. He says, nothing is done to create disease. No organs are arranged to promote misery. The incoming of sickness and pain is not according to the original design, but a result of our disordered state. Man's body, as it, is left, as it left the maker's hand, was neither framed for disease, decay, nor death. Neither was the purpose of it discomfort and anguish. For otherwise, it was framed for a joyful activity and a peaceable enjoyment of God. Jehovah has, in great consideration, laid up in the world cures for your ailments and helps for your feebleness. And if many of these had been long in their discovery, it is because it was far better for man's benefit to find out by himself and to have them labeled and placed in order before his eyes. We may be sure of this, that Jehovah has never taken delight in the ills of his creatures, but has sought their good and laid himself out to alleviate the distresses into which they have guiltily plunged themselves into. And I just want to say, we're gonna, I'll talk in my last point a little bit about this, this, how we can, how we can bank on God's goodness and, and on His compassion, but just the I, the idea there that He is not how things were intended to be, and it's just to say this. I think we've all experienced it, but I mean, I, I had to walk one of my students this semester through one of the most painful things he's been through with a family member dying. Like things happen. I mean, life happens to us. I mean, we've had multiple people just at Grace. College, students, parents sick with cancer, somebody dying. Like we, we in this room, I promise you, if it's not you, somebody next to you has experienced this for themselves or for a family member or someone close to them. Like hard things and things that God did not intend are happening. And I just want to remind us this morning the good news that one day everything will be made right. And the way God created and intended things to be, it will be that way. That we won't have any ailments. There will be no tears. There will be no pain. None of that stuff. But also, and it's, it's by God's grace too, that he somehow, in his not having anything to do with evil, he uses it to awaken a world who is deaf. The, the situation that we're in being separated from God and apart from him, and in no other way for salvation except through Jesus, man, these ailments are the things that wake a deaf world up to the reality that, Man, life isn't just this easy, feasy, everything's fun. Like, man, I've experienced in my own life, I know you have too, when something really hard happens, it makes you stop. It makes you think about, man, what am I doing? What is this all about? Where am I going? Everybody has those questions. We just quiet them with all this stuff around us until in a moment some things are taken away and we have to stop and we have to answer some of those questions. Man, that's God's grace too. And he uses that to shape us and change us and mold us and then use us to go with the comfort which we found as we walk through those situations with him. Then, then he uses us to go do that with others. Again, I, I, I just, it kind of hit me this morning. I know if you guys have heard that song, Good, Good Father, I would sing it to y'all, but I'm not a good singer, so I'm not going to do that. But something caught me this morning as I was listening to it, and it just said this. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night. That he says, I've heard a thousand stories of what people say you're like, but I've experienced a tender mercy in the quietness of my heart at night. And that's the thing. There's a lot of people out there who say a lot of things about who God is, and they haven't experienced him. Like, and if you have, if you're in this room saying, I love and I accept and I trust Jesus as my Savior, if you've experienced the goodness of him, man, that's your greatest that's your greatest testament to a world that says a ton of things about him who haven't experienced them. And speak from your experience. 
I think often we get scared to, to, to share our faith, to answer tough questions to people because we don't feel like we have all these tough, these good answers, whatever. They cannot argue against your experience. And just be honest and open about what God has done in your life. And if someone says, oh, that, that's not true, I mean, what can you do? But uh, I just, it's something I, 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 I liked to think about this morning. And the last point, guys. He says, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy and compassion is over all that he has made. And this is kind of what I want to end on. And I, I've had moments, just like we talked about this, this good and having hard things happen, I remember there was a part of college for me as a freshman as I really wrestled with just the idea of election and, um, you know, some people being saved, some people not. Like, how does this all work? I don't understand it. And, you know, I don't have the answer. Surprise. So, but what God really did to me in that time is like, has been foundational to, to my outlook on him. Because, see, what happens a lot of times when we question God's goodness, the, the typical question of, you know, when you experience salvation, maybe, you begin to ask, well, what about that person who's in some remote island that's never heard the gospel? Like, will they be saved too? Like, how does this all work? You know, we have questions. And the, the reality is that some of these questions can't be answered, but this is what can be answered, God's character. And there's three of these verses that have just really stuck with me about God's compassion over all that he has made. And really, it's this idea, uh, before I read these it's, these, it's this idea that I can trust that those questions I have that come from a place of compassion, like, what, how can this person experience evil? Like, how does this work, God? Or does this person, they have a chance to have salvation? Whatever. As I wrestle with big questions, I think, man, I can trust that God who made me, who God who gave me the the capacity to have compassion, to ask those kind of questions that are natural for us, I can trust that that is of the nature of God. And can we not trust him that he will be more just and more compassionate than we could ever be? And these three, these three verses are the ones that I really bank on as I say that. And the first one is 1 Timothy 2.4, and it says this, that this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of, of the truth. That we don't know how it all works, but God is compassionate. He wants all to be saved. He wants all to come to know him. Um, in 2 Peter 3, 3, 8, 9, a similar thing, he says, but do not overlook this fact. He's talking about the end of times coming, the Lord coming back. You know, everyone's saying, come back. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God doesn't want to see one person perish. He doesn't like seeing the the ailments and the things that people live in. And then further than that, he doesn't like to send anybody to hell. Like our God's is good and we can trust his goodness over ours in moments that we don't understand how everything works. That doesn't mean don't search for answers and, and do that kind of stuff, but it means come to rest in the fact that these things are true about our God. And he's good. And the last thing, and I'm done, is it just made me think about uh, as Jesus dealt with people again, you know, as his friend Lazarus died, like Jesus wept. And as Jesus looked out on these people in Matthew 9, he sees these people just lost. And he says, they're like, they're like a bunch of sheep without a shepherd. And it says he just had compassion on them. 
And, and that's who our God is. He is a compassionate God. He is not just this, this military angry, that a, a lot of people have this idea of this brimstone and fire, heaven or hell kind of person. That's not who our God is. That it's in his great love and mercy that he sent his son Jesus in order that we would have life, that we would know him. And so just to wrap my conclusion, if someone asks you and asks yourself, how do you know this the way, how, how do you know this is who God is? Again, all we have to do is point to Jesus. That Jesus is the exact representation of God and what he came here to do to live a perfect life, to die on a cross in order that anybody, anybody that would call on his name would experience life and salvation and eternity. He, he paid it with his blood. And we can look to him and we can bank on that. And again, the only person in this world who's really suffered, there's only one person. All of us, we don't deserve anything. And that's where we get in trouble a lot of times is that we, we feel entitled to things. And when we realize the reality of the gravity of our situation, we don't deserve a thing. Like God is good to us. There's only one person, that was Jesus, who was perfect. And yet he hung on a cross and he suffered and he bled for us, for you and for me. And just may we be reminded of who our God is, you know? Uh, as we sing a couple more songs, just may we reflect on who God is in his character and the fact that he is gracious and merciful, that he's slow to anger, that he's abundant in his steadfast love for us, and that he's good to all, and he has compassion over everything that he's made. Like, well, may that well up the, the appropriate praise in us that he deserves. And as they begin, I just... Right above that, that chunk we just read, I think in verse 4 or 5, it says, David wrote, they pour forth, he's talking about the saints, he says, they pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. And I just love that idea, the fame of your abundant goodness. Well, may we be people who spread the fame of God's goodness. That's what we're called to do. Experience and spread the fame. And pray with me and then, We'll sing some songs. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a place to meet, to slow down, God, to, to stop in the midst of maybe a new summer session and a new season of life as we step into college or we step into another um, semester or as we step into our last, Lord. And as we don't know what's next for us, maybe as, if we're in that place or we know we're here for a few years and there's all these things going to be thrown at us in college, Lord, I pray that we would catch a more and more glimpse of your fame and your goodness and that that's what we would be about. Um, Lord, and we need your help. That we are people who wander and we are people who, who taste and see, but yet we still try elsewhere at times, Lord. So help us. By your Holy Spirit, God, would you help us to see who you are and to love it and to trust it and, and to be about it, God. So we love you, we trust you, we thank you, and we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.